Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Zuvon for June 6, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Now, I, do I hear booing in the background, or is Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, speaking at one of your houses? No. No, seriously, don't hear any feedback in the back. But um, Tim and Catherine, I know both of y'all saw this. Tim, what was your thoughts when you saw uh, the video of how loudly and longly he got booed at the Georgia uh, State Convention this weekend? Well, of course, he's in trouble. Uh, Donald Trump controls the party. His people are in most of the party positions. And that room was full of them, and in Trump world, uh, Governor Kemp is not a true believer. Therefore, he is on the other side. And and I I, I didn't think this at first, but I'm beginning to think he's going to have a lot of trouble winning the GOP nomination. Now, what do you think, Catherine? I agree. I think he's going to have trouble with that nomination. Uh, But... That then you just have to ask who's going to win. So right now we have uh, Brian Kemp and Vernon Jones, right? Who else is running? Mm-hmm. Uh, an educator named Candace Taylor that ran for the um, Senate seat that was eventually won by Raphael Warnock. Hmm. I know. You can say who, Catherine. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I just I shudder to think that uh, Vernon Jones would be the front runner, but I guess he got cheered when he came stood up to the, the when he was at the convention. So yeah, I don't know what to I, say about that. Yeah, I was actually yeah. wondering. I, I tried to see video, you know, when Vernon Jones spoke. What kind of reception did he get? I do know that when they showed the the boo fest for um, Brian Kemp, that there were, you know, not tons, but several Vernon Jones signs being waved in the crowd. And I will say, it was of that crowd, and I don't know the total attendance, it was not unanimous. There were people cheering for Brian Kemp, but when you're the sitting governor of your party, the cheers probably should be a hundred to zero, even if they're not robust. Um, but typically, the, the sitting party leader of a party is not going to get booed at his own party convention or her party convention um, like that. That was don't, just don't, stunning. You, you guys know how politics work, and if you, you know how politicians react if they smell blood in the water. 
And there's got to be a lot of Republican politicians around this state in the state legislature, maybe some in Congress, uh, that are suddenly viewing the governor's seat with renewed interest. Uh, It's an easy door to walk through if they have a key, and the key is getting the full-throated endorsement of Donald Trump. Don't y'all think? that there are now a lot of named Republicans looking at this that perhaps were not looking at it before this convention? You would think um, that if, you know, Burt Jones has been mentioned, that he would come back up. I mean, Vernon Jones, obviously, I I just didn't think um, that would – I thought that was a bridge too far. Now I'm starting to think if it's just – the two of them as the you know known named candidates, Vernon Jones possibly could pull this off. Uh, the primary part. Let me be very clear about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But then I want to throw one more name out that sounds kind of crazy, but he was always supposed to be governor at some point, and that was former Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle. Brian Kemp successfully campaigned to Cagle's right. Could Cagle not make a case to come say, now I was going to be the adult and I was going to do the work of state government that um, people knew me for, but I would have always supported the leader of our party in the White House. And, and you know, because he didn't – I mean, I don't think Casey Cagle would have – I think Casey Cagle would have done a lot of what Brad Rathensperger and Brian Kemp did in the election, but since he wasn't in the office, he doesn't have to claim he would have. Um, could he run to the right on that one issue and then run with or to the left or maybe more good government on everything else in a primary to Brian Kemp and somehow make a political comeback? Catherine? I don't know. <laughs> I haven't even heard anything about him in the last few years. I mean, he hasn't even popped up and you know he hasn't I mean I haven't seen him on as a pundit or you know I just I just don't know if he's really got name recognition anymore it's been a while since we've heard from him so I think that might be a a a tough row for him to to hoe but yeah Yeah. I think it's more likely that it would be a, a, a newer person yeah. Tim, any thoughts on a Kegel comeback? No, I, I don't think he's quite the guy. He's not a uh, – he's just – he doesn't have the type personality. He He's not a go-out-there-and-get-him kind of guy. He doesn't know how to rah-rah crap. I don't think he would appeal to Donald Trump. And remember, whoever – wants to primary the governor, has to appeal to Donald Trump to the point that Trump comes and actually, you know, campaigns for him or gives him a full endorsement, just, you know, gives his voters the go-ahead to vote against the governor. There has to be somebody like that, and I just don't think that Casey Cagle is that person. I'm with Catherine, and I think he's done. Yeah, I I would if this was my soul hold, I wouldn't buy him. I was just throwing it out there because their bench, 
I guess you don't even know what their bench is anymore because the Republican Party doesn't uh, function with that traditional discipline they're known for. I mean, you know, the mm-hmm. old saying, Democrats fall in love, Republicans fall in line. Well, they're neither with Brian Kemp right now. And this bunch has no interest in falling in line except to follow whatever Donald Trump is uh, says and some of his minions uh, might say. Um, so it, it, they're so unpredictable. You, you just can't use uh, regular conventional wisdom on them anymore. And so who knows? And I do think that maybe now after this convention, does Donald Trump go ahead and endorse Vernon Jones? Um, Would that endorsement be enough to freeze other people out of the primary and and let that anti or the pro-Trump wing of the Republican Party be all his own, Catherine? Well, that's an interesting – that would be an interesting uh, step. I mean, I mean, I think that would probably lock lock up the primary because nobody's going to want to run against a um, Trump endorsed candidate. But is that really what Trump wants to do? Is that is is Vernon Jones really the best candidate to endorse at this point? Like, are we are we still waiting? Are there still could there still be other people out there that Trump would like, that Trump supporters would like, that um, he might be more willing to endorse and might be a better foil for the Democrats? I don't, I don't know, but I, I, I think it might be a little early for Trump to yeah. step in. Well, I, I mean, I, I'll say this. I think we're try, maybe putting some of our biases, um, you know, of, of – really good common sense upon this decision but you know we might say oh but vernon jones has a checkered personal past so does donald trump vernon jones has been all over the lot with his political allegiances so has donald trump vernon jones will say whatever serves vernon jones so will donald trump um you know this is a trump kind of guy right tim I think he's a Trump kind of guy, but still, uh, I, I have to uh, repeat the caution that Catherine gave, who is in the wings. I've got to believe that once everyone has seen this and feels that the governor can be had, there's a lot of people that would love to be governor, including people that are in Congress, as we have seen in our recent past in in this very state. Um, I, I, I got to believe there's some others coming, and they will be far more formidable than Vernon Jones is. Yeah, I'll tell you this. After watching that video um, and, and knowing what this base likes, um, Brian Kemp better hope that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, loves the national spotlight of Congress um, and doesn't want to try to run for the primary because she would assert um, Vernon Jones in that wing, and she would blow right past Brian Kemp as well. Now, let's talk about another name that I'm sure saw footage of that video, and everybody's wondering, Tim, 
does that video seeing it um does that make Stacey Abrams not move her timetable up but does it make it more likely we may find out um what her next political move is regarding the governor's race well let, let let's say that this all is great news for Stacey Abrams uh she could basically get in, have the Democratic feel pretty much to herself, raise money and support, uh, get her campaign totally in gear and going, and just watch the GOP fight it out because they wouldn't be able to go after her because they'd be too busy going after each other. Uh, so, you know, that it... it you know, she's got to know what we know, obviously, that, you know, this, this, this cannot be bad news for Stacey Abrams if she wants to get in this race. Certainly not. Catherine, your thoughts on Stacey Abrams based on getting to watch this video in a race that really has scant uh, polling in particular in the Republican primary side? Well, obviously, I mean, I think it bodes well for Stacey Abrams. I'm just not so sure that Stacey's decisions on this are based on, um, you know, Republicans' reaction to Brian Kemp in a GOP convention. But I'm sure that uh, it, it, you know, is more, um, you know, more arrows in her, you know, what more reasons. It gives her more reasons to make a decision uh, to run, but but I'm not sure that it's that reaction. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll say this. I did think that maybe some of these moves that um, Brian Kemp made may have bailed him out um, with the Republican primary electorate. That was before that video. Um, now I'm very much questioning that. The last question on this whole topic is, does that – pool of people at that event accurately represent the people that will vote next summer. I guess we don't know if it will be June, July, um, when exactly, but next summer, does that accurately reflect um, who will you know, pull the levers in the primary election, Tim? I believe it does. Uh, it seems to me that the leadership um, at the local level around the state of the GOP, a lot of it mirrors uh, the thoughts of the voters right now. I'm, I'm, the Trump brand has really permeated the Georgia Republican Party, as it has many Republican parties around the country. So, yeah, I would I would say certainly they represent what the average uh, Republican voter is thinking out there in Georgia, and especially the Trump voters, which is most of the Republican vote right now. Yes. Catherine, um, same question. Is that a, a good reflection? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they they went to the convention. They're they. I I would I would assume that those were, you know, GOP voters. And yes, they're going to vote in the primary. 
Yeah, I'll tell you this. I think that some of the really, really pro-Trump base is probably not even in that convention hall. So in that vein, the total Republican group may be more anti-Kemp, but I will say this. Some of those um, voter ID laws uh, that uh, Brian Kemp and the Republicans put in place might actually disenfranchise some of those voters in the primary, those anti-Kemp forces. And I've heard this before, so it might actually help Kemp slightly in the primary. Will it be enough? A very big question. But then um, they couldn't then vote in the general in which they might be willing to come back home. But I guess the bet is oh, enough Democrats get disenfranchised. But it's really, you know, that's been put out there that a lot of these laws, they may be in one way targeted for one group, but they're going to affect a lot of other groups. So that's why, on the whole, they're just bad anyway, because why do you want to keep people from, um, you know, exercising their right to vote? Well, let's quickly, um, before our guest Dante Cheney comes on with us, let's get one more segment in, um, Buy, Sell, Hold. Uh, Nikki Freed, Agriculture Commissioner in Florida, the only statewide elected Democrat um, to constitutional office, uh, she announced for governor this week um, she'll be in the primary with Congressman and former Florida Governor Charlie Crist, and then they'll be looking to face presumably Ron DeSantis, who's not in the same fix with his uh, primary base is Brian Kemp. Um, Catherine, buy, sell, hold, Nikki Freed. I'm really torn about this. Hold, just for a bit, just to see how Charlie Chris does. Um, I'm just not sure how he's going to be received in Florida um, as, as a governor candidate. Um, I think Nikki is a good candidate, so um, and she was elected statewide, so that's good. But I'm, I mean, Charlie Chris has great name recognition. I'm just a little hesitant about his uh, reception in Florida right now. So I say hold. Tim, same question. Buy, sell, hold, Nikki Freed. Yeah, I'm going to do a hold as well. I mean, you. you You've got to say that unlike a lot of other recent Democrats, uh, she knows how to win a statewide race, so you can't discount her. Uh, I think that'll be a great race between her and, and, and Charlie Chris. They're both well-liked, and uh, uh, but I, I think she has an excellent chance at at least the nomination. Now, beating the governor, of course, is quite a story, but I, I assume we're just doing a buy-sell hold on the primary, and so I'm going to do a hold. Yeah, I think we're looking at the first step first, and since Charlie Crist is a, a you know, name opposition, um, that, that will be a real race. I guess one thing that did help is that um, Congresswoman Val Demings ran uh, for Senate so it's not three people in the governor's race. And I guess mm-hmm. Gwen Graham, I don't know if she's announced uh, what she, her intentions are. I'm going to tell you this. Now, looking at it like a stock, I am going to 
um, by Nikki Freed long-term as a political prospect. But in this race, I'm going to sell her prospects because this Florida's just hard to tell. Um, what's going to happen in the short term, and she's young, she's got a long future, so if you're going to win this thing, why not just take the chances with Charlie Chris this time? Nikki Freed will be around for future cycles to run for other things, and um, so excited to bring in, for the second time on the Kudzu Vine, our uh, guest from Data Download on NBC News, the American Communities Project. Project. Mr. Dante Cheney. Welcome, Dante. Well, hey, how y'all doing tonight? Doing good. Hope good. you are. Um, well, Dante, I wasn't planning on starting here, but um, <laughs> since you kind of heard us talking about Florida, and I find it maybe uh-huh. the most intriguing political state, um, you did. You always are studying these states and seeing what happened. Why did Florida not move more Democratic and is seemingly the most large Republican state in the nation right now? Well, I think the demographic shifts that are remaking a lot of the rest of the country work differently in Florida, and that's because um, you have two big inflows into Florida uh, in terms of population. One you have – well, first of all, you've got – Venezuelan populations and Cuban populations in in the South, which tend to be actually Republican because of uh, a dislike of socialism or what they perceive to be, you know, socialism from where they come from and the idea that that could emerge in the United States. So they're nervous about it. The other thing, but there's still like there, there is a, there is a large, there's a large Hispanic population that should be pushing it quicker, uh, more quickly to be a democratic state. But the thing that's the other way around, the other thing that's impacting the state is you have this in-migration of 65-plus that just keeps flowing in. So, you know, they, and they're changing the middle of the state, and they've changed the I-5 corridor, I think, a little bit. And, like, you know, the villages just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and the villages is not the – you know, everybody talks about the villages as if that's where all the retirees are in Florida. They're all over the state. And as they flow down there, and I'll, I'll tell you right now, like, you know, I think there's this thought that it's a lot of old New Yorkers that move down there, and uh, it's, it's, it's a different kind of population that, lead, that has voted left in the past, so they're going to bring their leftist voting tendencies with them or their Democratic voting tendencies with them. In the middle of the state in particular, you get a lot of people down there from Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, those people are conservative. They were conservative when they were up north, and now they brought their, their conservative point of view with them uh, down to Florida. So it's, it's the reason why, to me, Florida is a perpetual battleground, why it's always so close, why people think it's going to shift, and it never quite shifts as much as we expect it to. Yes, uh, very interesting insight. Well, I like big states that are in the Sun Belt because, to me, that's where all the action is. So I'm going to ask about one more Uh, before I pass it to Catherine Tim, and that'd be the state of Texas. It has been continually moving Democratic because it really didn't have anywhere to go since it was so Republican, but it didn't move quite yet, and a lot of that was that uh, border section where a lot of Latino voters um, were more Republican than they've been in the past. Um, You can talk about any part of Texas you want, but I do know there's a lot of action along the border, if you will. Yeah, that's a huge story, and I think we're still trying to understand what happened down there. The there's and it was a lot of those border um, counties. You're talking about 
shifts, even if the even if Trump didn't win them, you're talking about shifts in margin of, you know, 20 points, 30 points, like either either flipping counties that had gone Democratic or making them very close and they'd been Democratic blowouts. So one theory is that what you've seen in some of those counties is uh, and the border area is a reaction to the Black Lives Matter protest, because uh, I, I know sometimes this can be a touchy subject to bring up. But um, a lot of times African-American populations and Hispanic populations don't necessarily see eye to eye. They, they think that they are at cross purposes in, in, in some things. They feel that they're, they're competitive with one another. That's, that's one thing. The other thing I'd say is those border areas, which are, I mean, yeah, they're very Hispanic, but they're small town. And I think they look at the stuff going on in cities and they, it, they don't like what they see. Uh, they don't, no, they don't really, they don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm being uh, unfair to say that they don't really know what's going on in those cities. I mean, if you spent your life growing up in a small border county along Texas, the idea of knowing what's going on in Dallas or Houston, never mind Denver or, or Chicago or, or Minneapolis, is is hard to is hard to grasp. So the movement there, there is some thought that like it was it was a revolt against seeing kind of the protests in cities and concerns about what's happening in cities. And uh, the one thing, uh, the other thing is a lot of those border counties, <clears throat> they have a very crucial, they have very close relationships. This may be surprising to people with law enforcement because a lot of those law enforcement officers are Hispanic as well. And they know those people and they do, they view them. They're their friends and neighbors. And, and they, uh, in those counties and those communities, those are very tight knit places. So the idea of, like, you know, defund the police has a different meaning down there. Even though it's not really what the phrase means, it, it looks and sounds like something very different down there. I will say, though, generally true with, all, with a lot of what we're seeing in the South, the shifts in Texas were surprisingly among whites of the college education. And, like, so all of a sudden these suburban counties around, uh, around Travis County, which is Austin, on either side of it, they're starting to look more Democratic. For, uh, Tarrant County voted Democratic. Uh, Tarrant is Fort Worth. That has been Republican since you know, time in memoriam. And so they're, they're in, you know, uh, Harris County, which is Houston, has become more reliably Democratic and the counties around it, the suburban counties around it, suburban Houston, they've shifted more Democratic. And all that ties in, I think, or I shouldn't say all of it, a lot of it ties in the shifts among white college educated voters that are unhappy with the direction of the GOP. Yes. Well, I'm going to ask a, a related Texas question. Um, we uh, know that you know people move all the time. A lot of people are gold, moving into California, but people are also moving out of California. And my understanding mm-hmm. is if a, someone moves out of California, the state they're most likely to move to is Texas. Um, in your research, what kind of voters are those California to Texas uh, migrants? <laughs> well, <laughs> It's not just Texas. Talk to some people in Denver, and they'll have a they'll have a big discussion with you about this. Um, so it is it's 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 the same group of people. It's 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 people with a college education. These are people that are moving because it's too expensive in California. Or I think this is actually a really underreported story in general in this country. The spread of the tech sector all around the country. So, you know, Silicon Valley it is still, you know, it is still a California it, based in California, but there are little Silicon Valleys all around the country and Google headquarters all around the country and little tech startups all around the country, particularly around major universities. So, you know, they become 
they become um, kind of vacuum. They vacuum up some of these people that want to leave California that want maybe better, better, uh, you know, standard of living, better cost of living in, in a different place and a, in a new start. And, you know, the, the other thing that's really made a lot of this possible is these urban areas because they're moving into urban areas. That's the other thing about it. They're, these urban areas feel similar. I, I, I've, I've said this over and over again, but, what's really happened in the last 20 years is these urban areas in the United States feel much, much more similar than they have in the past. And what does that mean? Well, I mean, you can, you know, you can decry the loss of, of, of individuality and, and community. And I think that's fair. But the other thing that happens is as these places become more and more similar, the moves become easier and easier to make. It's not like I'm moving to Texas. It's, it's, I'm moving to Austin. It's not that I'm moving to Texas as I'm moving, I'm moving to Houston. And, like, when you view it that way, it becomes easier to understand why you're seeing some of the things you're seeing. And, and they are. They lean left, which is, I guess, the very quick answer to your question. They are college-educated voters that lean left. And they're flowing out of California, and not just to Texas, but to Colorado. Some people go to Bozeman, Montana, and they will yell at you as they have yelled at me about, get out of here. We don't want you here, you people. Um, uh, they'll tell you there's too many people moving, particularly from California, with college degrees that are changing the atmosphere of the place. Yes, well, very interesting research. Well, I'm going to pass this over to Catherine, who will then pass it to Tim for some more questions. Catherine? Hello, thanks for being on with us tonight. We're happy to have you. Yeah. Um, I think we're all sort of anxiously awaiting uh, redistricting uh, following the census. Um, and I think our, we were talking about this before the show. We're just wondering if you have any um, insight into how uh, Democrats, Republicans are faring in uh, these new census results. If there's any, um, if you can, if, yeah. you can if, we've, if we know yet how that looks. So it's way too, it's, so it's way too early to say. I mean, to me, yeah. it's, it's, it's much less about what the census numbers look like than who draws the lines. <laughs> if you get the right person drawing the lines, they can draw a lot of Democratic and Republican districts out of um, some, um, oh, they can draw, they can draw, <laughs> they can draw Democratic <laughs> Republican districts pretty easily. But the one thing that's, in, that's interesting, and we're looking at this a little bit at the journal even, at the Wall Street Journal a little bit, is this idea that as these urban places have become really very quickly more democratic, like this, the, the Republican margins in the, have shrunken, the number of the, the Trump vote has really shrank in those places, Re- redistricting becomes a much more complicated task if you're a Republican. There used to be this, the, the way to draw a lot of Republican districts in a state like Georgia would be to loop to loop out enough of Gwinnett and merge it with a bunch of counties north to create a Republican district or to you know, loop out Cobb, loop some of Cobb out and then join it with a bunch of, join it with Forsyth or Cherokee or whatever you have up there. And then you've got a Republican district. That's really hard to do now because the democratic areas around the, the counties around Georgia have become so democratic that, that that becomes a more difficult task. Now, look again, People who know how to draw lines know how to draw lines, and they can find ways around yeah. pretty much anything. Um, but it is kind of remarkable to watch how, uh, for instance, Georgia 6 and 7, what happened to Georgia 6 and 7 is just absolutely remarkable. And Georgia 11 is on the same path. Like, if you know, that, that, they can't hold that. That district is going to have to be, I mean, it will be redrawn. But, like, if, you know, 
that district, if they were to keep it the way it is, probably within a couple of cycles would be Democratic. I mean, the, the, the movement is, is, the movement is just dramatic and, and the area around Atlanta. And again, that's just, uh, you know, that, that what you're seeing there in Georgia, that's replaying in big cities around the country and smaller cities. Like there's going to be a point when Des Moines just becomes unmanageable or uh, they're just going to, you know, Republicans are just going to have to acknowledge like, damn it, we're just going to have to take this. This is going to have to be a democratic district because we don't know what to do with Des Moines and Iowa. Right. It's those. Yeah. Uh, or, yes, you know, you know, you're seeing it in Kansas, you're seeing it in Kansas around Kansas city. Yeah. In mm. Georgia, it used to be, you know, Atlanta was a little blue dot in a red sea, but now it's like a red sea in the middle of a bigger red sea. You know, it's much it's <laughs> that, that blue dot has grown uh, much bigger because of the, you know, uh, expansion of Democrats into those suburban and exurban areas. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how they redraw that. Uh, um, I guess interesting is a kind word to use for it. Um, <laughs> since we haven't successfully uh, been able to legislate uh, some kind of um, redistricting that's not, you know, completely partisan. So, well, that was my question, so I'm going to pass it on to Tim for more. Thank you so much, Dante. Oh, sure. Yep, yep. Um, Good evening, sir, and I wanted to start by saying I noticed you're a big fan of the Tigers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, just for karma, I, I have in my hand, as we're talking, a little cup is sealed, and what it is is dirt on the mound at Tiger Stadium taken the night of the last game ever played at the Tigers. Uh, Y'all were just talking about the area around Atlanta. A lot of us have noticed a huge influx Thing that you were writing about, and that is Asian American and Pacific Island voters. And they are voting heavily Democratic in these elections. Why are they drawn to the Democratic Party? So, uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders, I hope I'm not breaking up on you. Let me know if I am. But, um, First of all, it's it's a massive group of people. I mean, we, we, we put it into one demographic group. It's, it's you know, everything from Chinese to Koreans to Vietnamese to Japanese. It's 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 truly, I mean, in terms of ethnicity, it's it's a massive, massive group of people. Um, mm-hmm. But um, the interesting thing with it, it seems, is that some and some parts of it, Vietnamese population does actually vote a little bit, does tend to be a little bit Republican. The other populations do tend to vote Democratic. And I think... I think it has to do with the fact that, like, they see some of the things that are happening in the United States right now and um, with – you want to be careful how you say this, but, like, stoking the fires of kind of unease with, with minority groups and for people that are from a different country or, or, um, or immigrants of any kind. And I think that Asians in particular, you know, feel exposed in some ways because um, Asian people often look different from Anglo people. And because of that, they feel that if they're living in an environment that is tense and where people are looking to make trouble 
And, and I mean, if, there are a lot of, and look, there are a lot of acts of violence against, against Asian Americans in this country right now. You know, that they feel that the Republican Party is, I, my guess is, is, responsible for that. I mean, look, you know, the Trump administration kind of went out of its way to talk about China and to, and to, you know, draw lines and, and try to have an, try to have an enemy uh, or a frenemy um, uh, overseas. I, I think that what they're doing is they're seeing what's happening in the country in terms of just unease with immigrants. And they feel as that grows, they're particularly exposed. Uh, because people can identify, think they can identify an, an Asian person, an Asian American person, and that's that's that makes them that fearful and uneasy, and they don't like the direction that the Republican Party has gone there. Uh, well, what about Vietnamese immigrants? Why did they favor Donald Trump? So I, I think a lot of that has to do with the Vietnamese, a lot of the Vietnamese population. It's a little bit of what you see, I think, to some extent with the Cuban-American population and, and Venezuelan population in the United States as well, where, um, you know, it, a lot of them came here at a different time. Uh, and, uh, you know, they watched their country to be, you know, become a communist country. And because of that, there mm-hmm. is a certain amount of, 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 unease with the Democratic Party. Uh, but I will say, like, looking at the main groups, now there's a lot of groups that form the Asian American Pacific Islanders in the United States, but looking at the main ethnicities, the main nationalities, I should say, within the Asian American Pacific Islander group, it, the, the Vietnamese are really the only ones that where there is a, there is a Republican lean at all. The others lean heavily, some very heavily Democratic. Uh, I, and I do really think that that's that's one of the primary differences with with uh, Vietnamese Americans as opposed to Koreans or Japanese or uh, mm-hmm. Chinese Americans. Another one of your uh, recent writings was an article titled "It's Not Joe Biden's Senate Anymore." First right. of all, do you think that the president still feels uh, he can work with the Senate in ways that former presidents? worked uh for instance with the senate when he was there well i don't like joe biden's no fool i mean i think, I think mm-hmm. he knows what he's dealing with on capitol hill i think he's a, i think you know biden is a pragmatist and i think he realized what he's dealing with i also think that he was hoping and i think he's still hopeful that there's some way he can break through he can break through this kind of i mean the partisanship is just is is, is deeply concerning on Capitol Hill, and he's still hoping that there's some way he could break through with personal relationships. And and then the other thing I think about it, and people have to keep this in mind, that, you know, like a a huge percentage of this country voted for Donald Trump. And I think that Biden is aware of that. And he doesn't, he's trying to be cautious and, and be, and quote, you know, quote unquote, be everybody's president, whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. however you want to define that. And and he's trying to be careful not to go too far too fast. I do think that like at some point he will get to the point where he said, okay, well he'll say like, okay, like this isn't going to happen. Bill Manchin isn't going to make this easy for him. Uh, it sounds like, or, uh, and just say, look, we we have no choice. If we want to get anything done, we're going to have to we're we're, we're going to have to just work on our own as the Democratic Party without Republican support. I will say the Republicans would have no problem doing that. Obviously, or if they were there, mm-hmm. they would, they'd feel no qualms with doing that. They're they're perfectly fine with doing it. But I think Biden is still hoping that there's some chance to salvage some kind of um, 
common American goal with his presidency, which is pretty freaking hard in 2021, but I think, I think he still wants to try. Mm-hmm. But uh, you, he is a pragmatist, a, a realist, but looking at the lay of the land in the Senate, it's 50-50. We know what mm-hmm. Joe Manchin has been saying. Uh, we yeah. know that a growing course of Democrats have been calling for, for instance, the elimination of the filibuster. But there's yep. not even the votes there for that. So is there any realistic way to break the logjam so that major legislation can move without the support of someone like Manchin or Cinema? I don't – I mean, obviously the numbers just say no. I mean, uh-huh. the one thing I would say about the one thing I would say about Mansion, um, particularly the state he represents, is, um, look, there there has been this there has been this backlash against you know people bringing home the bacon for their you know it's like oh how dare you and earmarks and you know that's not what you know where it's about cutting government unless it's not really it's about cutting taxes but like you know I think Mansion West Virginia has always been an exception to that and the mm-hmm. idea of the idea of Look, infrastructure should sell. It, to, to me, like infrastructure should sell in a state like West Virginia. I mean, geez, broadband. God, they could. They could really. I mean, Montana or, or West Virginia is not an easy place to wire for broadband. It is. It's mountainous. Uh, it's remote. I mean, like mm-hmm. there, I, there should be a way to get him on board with basic. Now, there's always the question of the second infrastructure bill, the, the social infrastructure bill. But even that, like, there should be able to ways, there should be ways to, to at least win them over and maybe not get what you want in terms of the total amount of the total amount of money you want, but get it high enough. And if Republicans are really just like, no, we're not going to do anything on this. I wonder if there's a way to get Manchin to come along just because there's too much that he can bring home to the people of West Virginia and sell to them and say, look what I've done for you. Never mind what the polls say. I and mean, the polls say those those proposals are are very popular. So my guess is that if you ever got to the point where Manchin thought there, thought this thing was really going to die, there isn't going to be any infrastructure mm-hmm. bill, or not 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 one of any size that would be that that would be big enough as in his mind, that he might be able to find a one term exception or a one term. You know, they might find some strange way to get around the filibuster just once to get something done that he thinks needs to be done for his state. I do think that like there aren't a lot of pressure points at Joe Manchin politically, but I do think that Manchin wants to do well for the people of, of West Virginia. And I think the one pressure point you have with him is look what we're offering West Virginia. I I do think that that, that would mean something to him. Hmm. That's an excellent analysis. And with that, I'm going to send it back to David, David. Yes. Uh, well, Dante, I did have one more question uh, that I wanted to ask kind of globally about, um, you know, a lot of the country. And we know that there's a lot of places that are very anti-Trump and they vote Democratic. And we know that most places that vote Republican, the Republican voters in that state are very pro-Trump. But there are mm-hmm. a base of people in between that aren't, you know, totally sold on Democratic politics but reject Trump and Trumpism. Is there right. a geographic base for an anti-Trump movement, it, particularly within the Republican Party or, I guess, a third-party candidacy that wasn't Democratic? 
Uh, I mean, so the way I look at it, when I, you know, the project I run, um, you know, the project is no longer actually at GW. We've, we've moved our project to Michigan State University, but it's still the American Community Project. Um, the thing that jumps out of the data really clearly are these places called the exurbs, and you have a huge swath of them around uh, Atlanta, as I'm sure you, as I'm sure you know, you guys know Atlanta well. Like there is a, there are a lot of exurbs around Atlanta, and those are the voters where the Republicans are having trouble holding on to them. They're, they are not Democrats. They don't, they don't like the Democrats, but they are not Trump Republicans. And they, I keep wondering as the Republicans head down this path, of, you know, they, they keep seeming to want to go further and further down the Trump path. And it's like, you know, at what point do you, what, what point do these ex-urban voters who are basically college educated Republicans um, or former, well, I mean, College-educated people who have voted Republican in the past, and they do not like the direction of the GOP. And if the if the if the party just keeps moving farther and farther toward Trump, the Republican Party keeps moving farther and farther toward Trump. Do they just decide, uh, no, there isn't a home for us anymore? The, the biggest shift in the last election, the biggest shift in vote in the last election, came in the exurbs. They that Trump still won them, and that he but he won them by six points fewer than he won them by in uh, than he won them by in um, 2016. It's that's a, that's not a small shift. That's th- those those counties have voted Republican for a very 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 long time, and then this last election, Trump the the the, the percentage that Trump got 55 percent was the lowest that any Republican has gotten in those places in the 21st century and the margin that Biden got 43% was, was the same was oh, the, not the margin, but the percentage that Biden got 43% was the same percentage that Barack Obama got in 2008. And remember 2008 was a blowout. This election was very close. This nationally, this is a very close election and Biden did better than Obama did in the excerpts against Trump. So what does that tell you? That tells you that there's something going on in those excerpts that really should have the Republicans concerned. They don't seem to be concerned yet, but if I were them, I would be concerned. And the place you'll see it, obviously, you'll see it in counties like Cherokee and Forsyth there around, mm. around Atlanta. But like mm. when you head north, you'll see it in Delaware County, Ohio, and you've already seen it hit some places. I mean, you'll see it in Waukesha, Wisconsin. I know Waukesha is reliably Republican, but Trump did not do as well there in 2020 as he did in 2016. And why does that matter? Because when those margins get too, when the margins in those, those Republican margins get too small, that's when you lose states. That's when you lose. There's a lot of reasons why Biden won Georgia. But if you ask me, the most critical one, obviously you got the black turnout. They, the Democrats got the black turnout they needed down there. But that still wouldn't have been enough if Trump was able to get what he needed out of those excerpts and he couldn't get it. He, 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 there, that loss of margin in those places cost him, cost him Georgia. It's gonna, if it keeps up, it's going to cost him states like North Carolina. They've got real problems in those places. Now, the question is, you know, are those places willing to vote Democratic? I don't know. We'll see. But right now, they're really not sure if they want to keep voting Republican. Yes. Well, what incredible insight. I know the last time you were on, we talked about the 2009 book, um, How Barack Obama Won, that was, I guess, authored by your colleague Chuck Todd. And I said, you know, you need to get with Mm -hmm. him and and write one about the 2020 election. Um, Is there anything (laughs) in the works, maybe not a book, but a study that would 
somewhat replicate that work. I'll talk to Chuck actually about that. Right now, our plan is our our interest right now at Meet the Press, and and I think I think everybody's interest nationally is that 2020 is not was not really the end of anything. It was a waypoint on the on the journey of both parties remaking themselves. So to, to me, the most interesting, and I know Chuck and I have talked about this. We're trying to pick four or five places to go where we can watch these shifts happen, where we can watch whether or not the Republicans can hold on to the excerpts whether the Democrats can kind of merge the kind of younger, more liberal, more, you know, quote unquote, woke parts of the party with the old line minority base of the party uh, within in the cities, because those are very different kinds of voters. And the way those things are moving to us, that's the story, because 2020 was a fascinating story. But it's what is what does the world look like after Trump? (laughs) <laughs> or, or semi after Trump because he's still going to go out and give speeches. What's it going to look like after Trump? We don't really know yet. Uh, but what we can say is you can look at what's happened in politics in the last 20 years, and there's clearly a shift happening, and we're in the middle of it, and it's we need to watch it more closely because it's going to dictate where politics goes in the next two or three decades. Hmm. Yes, uh, definitely so. Well, we'll be watching, uh, you know, your research there, and we hope somewhere down the line we can have you on again to find uh, more insight from you. Yeah, I'm happy to come on. It's always good to talk. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Talk to you later. Thank you. Uh, bye-bye. Yes, sir. That was Dante Cheney of uh, Data Download and MSNBC, or NBC, um, also the Wall Street Journal, like he mentioned, the American Communities Project. It's now with Michigan State. Catherine, sounds like Michigan State's going, doing good work, right? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I had to tease the, the, the University of Michigan. Um, I, I guess a legacy. Um, is what you told us. But, yeah, always great to have Dante on because, uh, I mean, yeah, people could hear what kind of um, just analysis there was there to kind of read the tea leaves and project in the future um, where we are and where we're going. Um, well, let's talk about something we didn't even get to talk to Dante about, not that we had planned because we had booked him several weeks ago. New Mexico's first district Deb Howland, she uh, was appointed to the Biden administration, Secretary of Interior. They had to replace her. They held the special election this past week. People felt, you know, Democrats will hold this seat. It's a Democratic district. And I think there was a little bit of fretting going on uh, heading into it. Not that um, the Democrats would lose the seat, but it would be kind of an anemic victory. It would be like we won it just because of the population. But – uh, and I don't have her name in front of us, the congresswoman-elect, she actually exceeded uh, what both Deb Howland did and what Joe Biden did in November 2020 in this special election, which was the first time since Woodrow Wilson appointed somebody to the cabinet. And no, I don't know what state and seat that involved that uh, when Woodrow tapped somebody. Um, Catherine, how surprised were you by that um, result? Well, it was impressive, wasn't it? Uh, I mean, I think we all expected a win, but that was a, a kind of incredible, um, what was it, a 25-point win? Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, I hope that it bodes well for uh, 2022. It's always hard to know if 
if if those results are going to you know carry forward but we can we can be optimistic about it certainly yes um tim what were your thoughts on congresswoman elect melanie stansberry's victory on tuesday well you know it was the first time that a democrat faced off against a Republican in a congressional race in the Joe Biden era. That's why people were looking at this, because the president's popularity numbers had held steady. Um, and But Democrats were fretting a little bit because of the possibility of losing the midterms last year. So they wanted to look at this race as something to read the tea leaves by. If the Democrats won the race by 10 points, bad news. If they won it by more than 15, good news. And if they won it by this amount, great news. I'm not so sure. It's a D D plus 18 district. Um, So she did overperform some. I'm 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 not signing on to that line of thought though yet that this pretends great things for the Democrats in the midterms. It it's one race in a blue district. There could be a lot of reasons that the vote turned out the way it did. Maybe a lot of Republicans didn't vote. Maybe Democrats did overvote some. Uh but you 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 know I, I I'm not I'm not sure what to say about it except that I'm happy we held the seat, but I'm not I, I'd like to see some more one-on-one races like this play out this year. Maybe a couple of those governors' races to see if if this trend holds or not. Yes, I will say this. Um, I, I think the Texas seat would have been an interesting one. The, the Louisiana seat was just not going to be that interesting because um, it, it was a very Republican district, and um, Julia Lutlow was about as good as a candidate as the Republicans are going to get um, these mm-hmm. days. So that was tough, whereas uh, I believe her name Susan Wright was just not – um, did not have the background and resume of Julia Letlow. Um, but, but, and, of course, we did not make the runoff in that race. And had we made the runoff, that would have been a very interesting data point. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned those governor's races, and those historically have always been very big. Um, but Terry McAuliffe, I mean, he's been governor. He was very popular. Everybody thought he did a really good job for Virginia in his term as governor. So – it just seems like that's not going to be as good a data point as it normally would be. And Phil Murphy, I sent y'all a poll, and we know poll, what polling is today. I hope it gets better. Um, but it appears he's about 11 points ahead, pretty close to 50%. Um, and, and so it doesn't like Phil Murphy to be in trouble either. So we may not get those data points in those two races. And some of these other special wow. elections – I guess we're going to have to continue to see some. Maybe the one in Ohio, there's going to be two. One's the Cleveland district, and I don't think that's going to be a uh, – that's a very Democratic district. But the one where the guy um, resigned to become – because he's kind of disillusioned with Trump-era uh, Republican politics. But he also um, took a job with, I believe, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce or somebody's Chamber of Commerce – I think that district could be an interesting data point. Tim, what are you you thinking there? 
Well, I, I was thinking, what if, what if both McAuliffe and Murphy won by 20? What about I, that? If they win by 20, and I think the interesting thing there would be, where did McAuliffe win the 20 at? Did Northern Virginia just get that much more Democratic? Did Hampton Roads turn out in a big, big way in that area? Or no. are some of those areas in the, near the Appalachian Mountains, were they a little less Republican than they've been? You know, I, I think that's some of the data you would look at a statewide race. And, and you know, you know, you 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 lit onto something there. You you hit on it. Uh, I'm looking at the Trump areas. Are they undervoting because Donald Trump is not on the ballot? And will they mm-hmm. do the same thing next year? Because he again will not have his name on the ballot. Yeah, and I'll say this. I did read, and I sent it to y'all, Catherine Melanie Stansberry. They said she not only did better in the urban and suburban parts of the district, she did better in the rural parts of that district. What does that tell us? I think it tells us that we have a lot of work to do to, you know, get out the vote in rural areas and do what we can to appeal to the rural voters. but but that's what I'm saying. Melanie Stansberry is the Democratic candidate, and she showed improvement over Deb Howland and Joe Biden in the rural area. So I, I, I would think it might mean that people were sold the boogeyman of the Biden administration, and some of these rural voters are like, really? I mean, the guy's got a 60, roughly 60% approval rating. It, it varies from poll to poll, but it's been very strong and very stable. I, I think part of that comes from people were told he was going to be one thing, and they don't feel about him like they were told they were going to feel, and that's naturally helping um, a lot uh, of Democratic candidates. Um, so, you know, we'll see, and I think I think y'all are right. We need to see more uh, data moving forward. Well, I want to thank our guest tonight, Dante Cheney, and uh, next week. A few weeks ago, Evan Scrimshaw was supposed to be on the show. Uh, something happened. We may get a chance to talk to Evan about that, but we're certainly going to talk about politics to Evan next week on the Kudzu Vine. Until then, good night, everybody. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united...